Last week, I googled the phrase, what went wrong? And it returned 923 million links. Everything from what went wrong with Christianity, with the economy, with Afghanistan, with Netflix, with Kim Kardashian. I really think we need to know that one. The entire 20th century, uh, Three Mile Island, something, anything that went wrong and caused unexpected problems. It seems that an awful lot has gone wrong. I'm beginning to think that www dot stands for what went wrong dot. I also tried the phrase tragic mistake and Google returned 13.4 million web pages. Where did it all go wrong? 1.3 billion hits, including the New York Giants. Where did it all go wrong? The most amazing thing about that is that millions of people are still asking. And so with those phrases ringing in our ears this Lent, we approach Jesus' final hours as recorded by John in this morning's Gospel reading. And I ask the question, what went wrong? How come a good and innocent man died on trumped-up charges in, by our standards, a kangaroo court when anyone could see that he was not guilty? How could it be that a man who lived the perfect life of compassion and peace could fall victim to an evil scheme? Was God just asleep at the switch? Did he turn his back for a minute and then turn again only to find that his son had been convicted and sentenced to die on ludicrous evidence? Because the trial and execution of Jesus was a pretty gross and obvious act of injustice. I have no legal training and I could have got him acquitted in a proper court of law. So how did this happen, this tragic mistake? How could the author of life become a helpless victim? What went wrong? Well, the answer to those questions is in Jesus' own words that we've read. On Good Friday, nothing went wrong. The death of Jesus, unjust, brutal, and appalling though it was, was not a tragic mistake. Sure, it was a mistake. If the authorities had known who he was, they surely wouldn't have killed him. But was Jesus the pawn in some cruel game, the victim of terrible circumstances beyond his control? No. Listen to his words again. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Elsewhere in John's Gospel, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. No tragic mistake here. No horrific accident. No vicious twist of fate. 
but rather a man facing a time of intense suffering and choosing to go through it because he knew that God was in it and it was necessary for the salvation of humankind. Here was a man who came from God with a mission and his ultimate mission was to die. The cross of Christ. Tragic mistake? No. A gruesome, bloody, inhuman necessity. Our gateway to life and to union with God and one another. Jesus' attitude to his impending death is summed up in a tiny phrase near the beginning of the gospel reading. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus sees himself as an ear of wheat that gets buried in the soil, dies and then begins to sprout. And then to grow into a tall, healthy plant and then produce a head heavy with grain. What an interesting image. Jesus, the seed, the death of which is the birth of a great harvest. And that harvest, of course, includes you and me, the people who came to life as a result of his death. And it makes me appreciate this truth. God uses dead things. He used a dead Messiah to bring life to the cosmos. He used the dead aspirations of his followers to transform the world with the message of new life. He used the dead ambitions of a fickle friend, Peter, on which to build the church. He used the dead faith of a militant Pharisee with a zeal for the blood of Christians, Saul of Tarsus, to determine the history of the Western world for 2,000 years and beyond. He used the dead of the Christian church, the white-robed army of martyrs, to be the seed of future generations of men and women of God. And he still uses the dead. He uses our dead dreams as a maternity room from which come God's new plans. He uses our dead hopes as the chrysalis from which renewed vision is released. He uses our dead relationships and passions as the stimulus to recreated life. God uses dead things. He uses broken things. An elderly woman had two large pots, each hung on the ends of a pole, which she carried around her neck. Each day, she would lift the yoke to her shoulders and trudge the long path to a stream. She would fill the two pots with water and then stagger the long journey home. This would meet her needs for one more day. One of the pots was perfect and always delivered a full load of water, but the other had a crack in it, and each day, by the time the woman had arrived home, this pot had leaked half of its load. For two full years this went on, with the woman bringing home only one and a half pots of water. 
Of course, the perfect pot was proud of its accomplishments and bragged about how useful it was to the woman, so much more efficient and reliable than the other pot. And the poor cracked pot would feel the shame of its imperfection and wallow in the miserable fact that it could only do half of what it had been made to do. After two years of bitter failure, the broken pot spoke to the woman. I am ashamed of myself because this crack in my side causes water to leak out all the way back to your house. I am so useless. But the old woman smiled gently at the pot. Do you ever notice on our walks back home from the stream that there are flowers on your side of the path but not on the other pot's side? That's because I have always known about your floor. So I planted flower seeds on your side of the path and every day while we walk home you water them. For two years I have been able to pick these beautiful flowers to decorate the table. Without you being just the way you are, there would be no beauty to grace our house. God uses broken things. God uses dead things. The body of Jesus was broken and God used him to redeem the world. You and I are also broken vessels. In our weaknesses and our flaws, God has a chance to show his power and love to the world. It's only when we are taken through the process of being broken and of dying that our true value becomes evident. It's all the result of a covenant. The one Jeremiah foresaw in the Hebrew lesson this morning. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Jesus brokered a new covenant between God and human beings. Now a covenant is not a contract. A contract is a legal thing. It is written and signed between two parties who have some kind of business to transact. And the reason they sign it is they don't trust each other. They're not sure enough of the other person's honesty to just shake on it. When you sign a contract, you read every sentence, you study each paragraph, you may even pay a lawyer to put it under a microscope. You want to know that you are not being ripped off. You need to read and understand just what you're committing to. Because if you break the contract, then you're liable to a fine or even prison time. We make contracts because the world we live in is fallen. In a contract, there's no grace, no trust, no love. I remember when I used to think my relationship with God was a contract. In fact, I remember the day I signed it. It was August the 23rd, 1979. 
That was the day I gave my life to God. I was 15. I believed that when I signed this contract, I was making promises. God would be number one in my life. I would obey his laws. I would read the Bible and pray each day. I would go to church every week. I would avoid temptations and generally be a virtuous influence on society, as virtuous as a 15-year-old boy could be. And God had obligations too. He promised to protect me from danger. Bless me, make my life generally smooth and make me generally comfortable. I understood that if I broke the contract and failed to keep all the promises I was signing my name to, then I rendered the whole thing worthless and God was under no obligation to keep his side of the deal. So I could not expect his love and protection if I failed. It took many, many years to learn that I never really did enter a contract with God, that this contract does not exist, that instead of a contract, God initiated a different kind of agreement. He made a covenant with me and with you. He actually made it 2,000 years ago on a cross and in an empty tomb. Unlike contracts, covenants are built on trust, love, mercy, kindness and grace. If I mess up in my covenant relationship with God, he does not withdraw his goodwill, tear up our arrangement or sue me. He will not disown me because he cannot disown himself. He must be true to his nature, and his nature is always to give a fresh start, always provide a new beginning, always love, forgive, protect, and care. And this covenant will last forever. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to look at your life. And let's not ask what went wrong But let's see in the messiness of our brokenness and in the obituary of our little deaths, let us see the seeds to new life. God is in the resurrection business. Amen.